Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34 is where we're at this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to read the chapter from the beginning to the end, and then uh, pray, and we'll go back through it together. Verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivitite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her, and he lay with her, and he violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. He might have got things a little wrong there. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Give me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. And now the sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And verse 7, And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by, by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her, to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamar, his father, and spoke deceitfully, the sons of Jacob did, spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give you our sister, the one who is, to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you if you become as we are. If every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you. And we will become one people. But... If you do not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and be gone. And their words pleased Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamar and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us, therefore... Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large and, and, and large enough for them, and let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only, verse 22, on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. I don't want to get too much beyond the story, but I, I, I would have liked to have been there for that conversation. Say, what? Anyway, verse 23. Will not their livestock and their property and, and every animal of theirs be ours? 
Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamar and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass, verse 25, on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, and what was in the city, and what was in the field, and all of their wealth, and, their, and all their little ones, and, and their wives, and took captive, uh, and, and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Wow, a lot going on in this chapter this morning, guys. And there's cool things for us to see. And um, as we begin to make our, our way through these events that are recorded in this chapter... It's best that we remember a few things from last week's study in chapter 33. And in chapter 33, if you remember, we read about Jacob, how he was afraid of what his brother Esau might do to him. And, and really, I mentioned that because that's a catalyst to all the things that we get to read about today. And um, he was afraid of what his brother Esau might do to him. But in spite of that, we know that Jacob was eventually brought back into the land of Canaan safely, just like God had promised. And in bringing Jacob safely back into the land of Canaan, um, God had fulfilled many other promises that he had made to Jacob 20 years previously when Jacob had first fled and, and met with God at a place called Bethel. And in light of this, in light of the fulfillment of all the promises that God had spoken, Jacob, at the end of chapter 33, was moved to build an altar and worship and, and sacrifice upon it to God. And in doing so, he named this altar this, El Elohi, which means God, the God of Israel. And with the naming of this altar, Jacob declared that the God of his father Isaac and the God of his grandfather Abraham was also his God. It was his personal um, um, vow to, to, to be a worshiper and a follower of God. And we know that Jacob made this declaration in fulfillment to the vow that he had made when he had first left, the, left that land of Canaan and, and, and had promised that, saying to God, if you do everything, God, that you've promised to do for me, then you'll be my Lord, you'll be my God. And as we read about the things that Jacob did over those 20-year period of time, we studied his life and, 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 and you know, his interaction with, with Laban and some of the deceitful things that he did there and the things that God had commanded him to do, we know that there were times when Jacob faltered in his faith, right? He faltered in his faith by not trusting in the promises that God had spoken to him, and also he faltered in his faith by not doing the things that God had always instructed him to do. And we saw that even as Jacob entered into the land of Canaan, that he again failed to do what God had instructed him to do. And in an attempt 
as we closed last week in an attempt to put um, some distance between himself and his brother, Jacob veered off of the path that would have taken him back to Bethel. And in doing so, Jacob deterred, we're told, to the northwest. And first he went to the Sokuth and then to the city of Shechem where these events take place. And, 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 and this is also the same place where he built that altar to sacrifice to God. But what Jacob would realize and what Jacob is going to understand is something very important for us as well. Is he would learn the hard way, guys, that sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. And I point these things out because it was in this city, in the city of Shechem, on this detour that took Jacob off of God's path, that Dinah, his daughter, was violated and, and defiled. And the place where her brother Simeon and Levi were, were, were moved to take revenge and literally murder all the inhabitants, all, all the, the male inhabitants of, of this city. And um, in addition to that, we see through the whole thing that Jacob, as the father, as the, as the patriarch at this point, failed to act righteously on behalf of his family and on behalf of his daughter. And the fact of the matter is, is when we stray off of God's path, when we stray off of the path that God has instructed us to walk on, a detour place that seems best to us, you know what, there's always going to be th- sad things that we experience. And there's always going to be painful consequences. But what we read in this chapter should remind us that even when, because sometimes it feels like when we get off of God's path that there's no way of escape, that there's, it's, we've gone too far to turn back. But this chapter reminds us that even when we veer off of God's path, not only is there a right and a wrong way to respond, even when we're on our own path, as God makes things known to us, a right, a right way and a wrong way to respond to the circumstances that befall us as a result of that, but it's never too late to listen to God. Because God's talking, and he's calling out to us, and he's instructing us. He's calling us back to him, and it's never too late to listen to God and go back to the place that he has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that that truth would would seep down to our hearts and into our minds today. And God, as we study through these circumstances and read about the things that um, Jacob encountered and Lord, that um, you that and see God your relationship with them through this all, through it all. I pray God that we would see Lord um, ourselves in this story, in this account, whether it be whether whether it be a Hamar or a Shechem or or a Jacob or even a Levi or a Simeon. Lord, whatever we see ourselves in, in connection to, Lord, may we see that you're bigger. Than, than our failures, bigger than our faults, God, that your grace is sufficient and that you're calling us, God, even today to, to, to come back if we strayed off of the path to, that we've deterred from, from your place and to dwell with you, Lord, to abide in you like the word tells us, that there's, there's only life, God, when we're abiding in you and your son, Jesus Christ. God, you are the vine. We are the branches. And Lord, you've given us life and life abundantly. But Lord, help us to live in that place, God, where your blessings are flowing out, and where we're not putting ourselves in these circumstances where it feels like or seems like, God, that that we've been cornered to do something that we just don't want to do or we would regret doing. Father, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you turn back to the beginning of this chapter, I want to start with the first five verses. And as we look at these first five verses together, 
What I want to point out to you is that there are two specific things that need our attention, or two things that we should, we should look at. The first is, is, is in light of verse 1. Now, I have daughters, and if you're, a, if you're a, a man here today, and you have daughters, or you have sisters, or, or, or some of these things, it becomes real personal and, 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 and relatable in the sense that we, as men, have a protective heart. We have a protective spirit. God's put that inside of us. And as I read through this, and I, and I see this, and we're told how the daughter, uh, or, or, or how Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land, when we're told that, and then when we know the story, we know what happened, and when we consider what happened to Dinah, we have to consider how careless and foolish this really was. And I don't know about you, but it raises all kinds of questions. Questions, perhaps, about Dinah, Leah's mother, or her mother Leah, and, 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 and Jacob. For example, one of the questions that comes to my mind was, was Dinah just naive about her circumstances and her surroundings and the people in the land? And, 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 uh, and was she naive and ignorant um, about going into a place that was full of pagan people, evil people? These guys that they were living with historically were, were bad dudes. Was she ignorant and naive of that or was she simply rebellious? She could have been rebellious. I mean, how'd she get here? That's what I want to know. Was she, was she rebellious? And, and had she disregarded what her parents had said? Because, face it, let's face it, how many of you guys here have children or adult children that just do what they want to do and just disregard your counsel? It happens. And, and perhaps it was one of those, those two things. Or, 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 or was it... Was, was, I, I, why was it so important that she, she, she get to know these other women of the land? And if it was important, or even if she had rebelled, okay, so maybe it was an important thing, or maybe she rebelled, maybe Jacob and Leah and were, were doing their, 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 a good job as parents and all this. We don't want to assume one or the other. But even, even if that was the case, why didn't they send somebody a little more dependable to accompany her? Like a couple of her brothers who were out in the fields with the flocks. Furthermore, why was Jacob dwelling in this pagan place, ultimately, right? And deliberately endangering his family, who at the very least were being negatively influenced by those whom they had chose to live with. Remember, Jacob should have been at Bethel. A place that he had called the house of God. And in doing so be leading his family closer to the Lord. But instead, he had made a decision that seemed right to him, deterred off of the path that God had put him on, and went to dwell in a place where God had never told him to dwell. But even though there are no clear answers to these questions within the text that we read or anywhere else in Scripture, what they do show us is this, these questions, especially because they are unanswered. They show us that when we detour from the path of God, there's an absence of wisdom. When we detour from the path of God, there's an absence of wisdom. In fact, when you, if, you, if you take a second really quick to look back over this chapter, you'll notice, and I believe this is intentional, you'll notice that God is not even mentioned once in this whole chapter. And clearly the wisdom of God is absent 
And all throughout the Bible, there are countless examples of careless and foolish things done by God's people that were done in the absence of God's wisdom. And if you want to know more about that, go back to, go to the book of Proverbs and read. Count after count, example after example, instruction after instruction of what it's like when you break from the wisdom of God and what waits for you. So when we detour, or likewise, when we detour from the path of God, we're going to find ourselves in a place where God's wisdom is absent. Consequently, we will also do careless and foolish things, things that seem really wise to us, that can put us and those around us in dangerous places and bring much pain. And for Jacob, this became true when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the prince of this city or this country, according to verse 2, when he saw Dinah. As she was going about the land through the city, wanting to meet these other daughters. And he took her, and he violated her. And in light of this, the other thing that we need to pay attention to is the fact that three times in this account, that word defiled is used in relationship to what had happened. It is used to describe the wicked deed of Shechem. First here in verse 5, then again in verse 13, and then lastly in verse 27. And in all three of those instances, each time the same word, tame, is used, which speaks of being made ceremonially unclean. And I want to point out that, that people who have been violated in this kind of way, they often tell or speak of how dirty they feel as a result of being violated. But this is not what this word is referring to. Rather, it's being used for us three times over to describe what had been done to Dinah in order to identify a contrast for us. A contrast between God's people and the Canaanite people of the land. In other words, from God's point of view, what Shechem did was wrong and evil. It was a defilement. But from Shechem's point of view... And think about this in the world that we live in today, right? The world's point of view on something, yet God's point of view. The contrast. Because from Shechem's point of view, and the other people that, that, that Israel had chose to dwell with, from their point of view, this was normal. Not only was it normal, it was acceptable. And we know that, not just from the historical accounts of, of what these people were like, but when Hamar goes to the citizens, the people of the city, who clearly know what's going on, there was no outrage. No one said, just turn them over to them and let them do what they want with them. That's the right thing. That's the just thing. And this becomes more evident as we read on in verse 3 and see that Shechem claimed that he had taken Dinah and Dinah and violated her because he loved her <laughs> and wanted her for his wife. That's backwards thinking, but that's the point. There's a contrast between man's ways and God's ways. But raping Dinah and then confining her in his house was clearly not an act of love, and both his actions and his words bore witness of the fact that God's people and the people of Canaan had completely different standards of conduct. Nevertheless, dwelling with the Canaanites brought a defilement, a defilement upon Dinah. And there's a spiritual comparison here for us to our own lives that needs to be addressed. Because, listen guys, when we as God's people choose to dwell with those of this world who do not live according to God's standards, what do you think is going to happen? 
we're going to be defiled. Meaning we will become corrupted and we'll be made unclean by the things that they do or the words that they speak or, or the lives that they live and the thinking that they put forth. And this is why God's word tells us to come out from those who are of this world and to live holy lives, sanctified, set apart unto God. But Jacob had not. And his actions had brought this evil upon his daughter and his family. And when Jacob was made aware of this, we see that his reaction was less than honorable as he remained silent. And he opened this door for vengeance and for murder. And in verse 6, as we read on about that, it says in verse 6, Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard of it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Now, it's easy to understand why the sons of Jacob were so grieved and angry over what had been done to their sister when they heard it. But also because of how Jacob, their father, apparently out of a self-preservation, which we'll get to in a little bit, how he was so unwilling to do anything about it. In fact, Jacob had remained silent when he first heard what had happened. So when Dinah's brothers came in from the field, not only had they heard about what was wrong or what had been done wrong, there the man, the very one who had done this thing, who had defiled their sister, was now in the middle of their camp asking their father, Jacob, to give Dinah to him as a wife. In light of this, I want to point out that the anger that is mentioned here, that Jacob's sons felt was a righteous anger. It was a righteous anger, and, and, and to be angry is not necessarily a sinful thing. The Word of God tells us this. In fact, in the Bible, it tells us to be angry, but do not sin. And, and the truth is, a godly anger can move us to protest and to stand up against what is wrong. It should and it should also cause us to protect and defend those who cannot protect themselves. Furthermore, it can motivate us to take an action in order to deter others from doing something that is wrong. However, we cannot be angry in sin by allowing for those feelings, those emotions, that anger to cause us to go and seek revenge or to do other ungodly things like Jacob's sons were led to do. And this is why we're told in the book of James, in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, he said, My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of God, or man, does not produce the righteousness of God. The point is, is when, when, when an ungodly thing, and, and it's, they're all around us today, Right? When an ungodly thing is motivating us to feel a godly anger, we must not simply react to our feelings. Rather, our feelings must be brought before God and our actions then brought into the will of God as we move and choose to do the right thing. And in doing so, what we do is we put our trust in God in the fact that if he sees fit, he'll be the one to do the avenging, not us. Now, as we read about these words that Hamar spoke first in verses 8 and 10 here in the text, we see that he came to appeal to Jacob's son, saying, 
why they should agree to let Shechem take Dinah as a wife, even after he had done these things. And he did so with what I believe are truly, two really, really bad reasons, <laughs> two bad requests, and um, saying first in verse 8 this, that Shechem longs for her. He longs for her. He really, really wants her. And then in verse 10, with the second reasoning, saying how it would profit them financially. But apparently this, apparently in that situation where they were at, it was becoming really obvious that the negotiation Hamar was attempting to make, the father, on behalf of his son, was not being received very well. And I suspect this is why Shechem finally speaks up in verse 12. He almost like jumps into the middle of the conversation when he sees things not going the way that he would like. And he says this, he simply says, I'll pay for her. And whatever you ask, I'll give you. Just give her to me. And in this, the sad thing is, is that both Hamar and Shechem were, show, were so consumed with themselves that neither of them ever gave the thought to make restitution for the harm, for the wrong, for the evil that they had done. The father did not come to apologize for his son. Rather, we see that he came at the demand of his wicked son in an attempt to appease his son, or in attempting to appease his son, was, was the motive behind the deals that he was making. And this reveals, this reveals how Shechem, was not, that he was not only an undisciplined child, he was also um, overindulged by his father. I think that's safe to say. And so being consumed by his lust for something that was not his, Shechem was willing to pay, so he thought, whatever the sons of Jacob would ask. But he had no desire to make right the wrong or the evil thing that he'd done. And Hamar and his wicked son, they're a warning for us. They're a reminder to us as Christian parents to be consistent with the disciplining of our children and to be diligent, as the Word of God says, to raise them up in the way that they may go according to God's ways, according to God's standards. For much of what our kids will grow up to be depends upon how we are raising them today. What are we pouring in? Now, Jacob's sons, as we've read already, they had obviously no intentions of accepting anything um, that Shechem was willing to offer. And, and frankly, they, they were right in doing so. They should not have made a deal for anything. But rather than openly declaring war or even demanding justice, they pretended to seek peace with their neighbor and offered to do business together and even to intermarry. And in doing so, they took the opportunity to deceive the Canaanite people. And in verse 13, it says, But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Amar his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, it's only one thing, mind you, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you do not heed us, and do not become circumcised, then we will not take your daughters, and we will take our daughter and be gone. And the, and the words 
in their words, pleased Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. Now, verse 13 clearly tells us, we don't, have to, we don't have to read into the text, it tells us that the sons of Jacob spoke deceitfully, deceitfully with Hamar and Shechem for what they had done for or to, to, to their sister. And, and they devised this plan to let Shechem appear that, that he would keep Dinah, their daughter, if they and every man in the city were to become circumcised as they were. Now, just from a realist point of view, I, 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 wonder, I, I wonder if they thought this plan through very well that, they could, that all of the men in the city would actually do this. Because um, it seems far-fetched. And, um, but nevertheless, what we see is that they agreed to it, and, and Shechem, obviously motivated by his lustful desires for Dinah, she, he, he did not delay in becoming what the Bible says here, the first of them to become circumcised. Consequently, verse 19, if you read there, it seems maybe a little uh, out of the sorts for us in what we might expect. It tells us that in doing so, it revealed that he was more honorable than all of, his, of all the household of his father. But I want to point out to you that this is in no way a compliment towards the character of Shechem. Rather, it's an indictment against Hamar's family. And even all the other men of the city of Shechem who also agreed to be circumcised, in that it shows us that, that, that the most honorable of these men, Shechem, the most honorable out of all of them was, was, a, was a rapist and a kidnapper. And then, and then from there it went down. The rest were much worse. And as Hamer was able to do what seems impossible and convince the rest of the men, the adult men, mind you, in the city of Shechem, to also be circumcised, we see that he did so in verses 22 and 23 by the same motive that Shechem was willing to be circumcised, by appealing to their desires, to their lusts. This desire to acquire Jacob's wealth. In other words, the wicked Canaanites saw this agreement as an opportunity to become one, literally to absorb Israel in and gradually come to possess their wealth and all of their people. There's a danger there, a warning there. And see, Jacob's sons used this as a means, we know, to weaken the men and to get them ready for their slaughter, for the rest of their plans. And, and, and we know that being led by their lusts, Shechem, Hamar, and the rest of the men of the city, being led by their lusts, they never suspected the danger. And this reminds me of Proverbs 11, verses 3 through 6, which says this. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness, and the righteousness of the upright will deliver him, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lusts. And clearly, guys, lust is a powerful thing. It drives so much of the world that we live in today. Look at a billboard. Look at the ads in your Facebook account, on TV, in magazines. And lust is a powerful thing that we as Christians, those who are called to live separate 
set apart from the world that we need to guard our hearts and minds against. And we must even be willing to quickly turn away from the kind of lustful thinking and lustful desires that fill our hearts and minds and, and, and lest we be moved to do the things that will also take us out of God's will and like the Canaanite people, into a place of slaughter. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it reminds us of this saying, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For that all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things are not of the Father, but of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now I look at this and I go, Chekham got what he deserved. I, I think that. And even though he received what he deserved for the evil things that he did, it does not mean that Simeon and Levi and the other sons of Jacob are right for doing what they did. But we can see how Hamar and Shechem were caught, how they were caught by their lusts in that snare that had been cleverly set before them. And sadly, I think one of the things that we need to notice in all of this is we can see how these sons of Jacob had learned to be expert deceivers by simply watching their father Jacob do the same thing. And in verse 25, we read that it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain... I don't know why that's more significant. I tried doing a little research and I figured it was not important, but I guess the third day is the bad day. It says that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and they went out. So when three days had passed, at a time when all the males in Shechem were in too much pain to be able to defend themselves. Simeon and Levi, and those, those brothers happened to be the full brothers of Dinah. Um, they were both sons of Leah, and, and Dinah was a daughter of Leah. They took it upon themselves to attack, and they killed Hamar and his son, and every male in the city, we're told. Then with all the other sons of Jacob, they looted the city and they took captive the women and the children. And, and, and what they did together, it was an evil thing to do. And when Jacob heard about it, he was both, we're told, angry and frightened. He was angered and he was frightened. And sadly, Jacob was more concerned about, when we read previously, and we'll look back at it here, but he was more concerned about the things that his is he was more concerned about how the things his boys had done would affect what others thought of him. Rather than being concerned about the evil that they had done and disciplining or rebuking them for it. And, and, and certainly, guys, our witness is important. After all, Jacob had just built this altar, right? An altar out before everybody as a testimony to the fact that God was his God.
And certainly our witness is important and the way we live in front of people as representatives of God is something that we need to be concerned with. But we see from verse 30, if you look there with me, that Jacob was more concerned about the other Canaanites hearing about what had been done and then gathering together to kill him than he was about his witness as a worshiper of God. Jacob, or I mean, um, Jacob, Justin and Rich, if you guys want to come back up, you don't want to be Jacob in this story then. And, and um, as we look at this as a whole, it's clear that, that the responsibility to protect, as we talked about in the very beginning, his daughter Dinah and his family, but also the responsibility to seek justice in an equitable way for his daughter as a result of what had happened was, was, was Jacob's responsibility. It was his responsibility, but because he neglected both of these things, Again, setting himself on a path, another detour, apart from what God's will would have been. Both of these things, as a result of this, his sons, Simeon and Levi, were put in a difficult spot. They were put in a difficult spot, and in doing so, they took it upon themselves to do something. And clearly, they went too far by slaughtering the Canaanites and looting their city. But the bottom line is, is if Jacob and his family had been in Bethel, the place where God had called them to dwell, the place where they belong, this tragedy would have never occurred. You ever been that person? You ever been in that spot? You see, the point is, is we will find ourselves in difficult situations where it feels like there's no good way out and in places where we're tempted to compromise what we know is to right simply because we've chosen to stray off of God's path and dwell in places that we've never been instructed to dwell. And guys, this chapter is a reminder for us to stay on the path that God has called us to walk on. This chapter is a reminder for us to only dwell in the place that He has instructed us to dwell to trust in his promises, to rely upon him, to cling to him. And as we're traveling down this road of life, this walk of faith that God's called us to, and, 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 and we're weak in faith and we're doubting because of the things that we've, that, that, that we've run into or the circumstances surrounding us, understand that those decisions that we make to detour or to veer can come at a great cost. It's always best. It's always best to walk in the way that God has called us to. And to do what he has commanded, even when it doesn't seem right to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this time this morning. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom, Lord. If we don't know which way to go, to the right or to the left, Lord, if the path seems to be unclear, I pray, God, that you would make it clear to us Lord, each one of us is on a journey and we face many things in our marriages and in our parenting and our finances and in our work and even within our church and in what you've called us to do. And, and Lord, sometimes we don't know what way to go. But if you, we, you tell us, God, that if we call out to you, you will make it known. And Lord, when we're doubting, we can go to um, our other believers and we can go to your word and we can get clear answers. And so I pray, God, that if there's anyone here this morning that is lost and that does not know, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal which way is right. 
And then in doing so, God, that you would equip each one of us, strengthen us, God, by your Holy Spirit to have the, the faith, Lord, and the courage and the strength in the, in the time that we live in, in this dark world that we live in, Lord, that, that pulls us away from you into, into places where we're, we shouldn't dwell. Father, you, would, you equip us, Lord, to stay on that straight and narrow path. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has veered and who has deterred and has found themselves in this place where they're, they feel cornered. They feel desperate and hopeless and, and they don't know, God, how to get out. I pray, Lord, that they would not do something that they know is wrong to do, but that they would trust you and that they would do what you say and that they would understand, God, that it's not too late. And even though there may be some painful things in, in doing the right thing, God, it's far less painful than the alternative. Lord, I pray you would bless us this morning, that you would go before us this week. Father, that our hearts would be ever more in love with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.